It's the Pacific Rim Pro Wrestling Podcast. The podcast that takes you from Seattle to Tokyo and all points throughout history. In the Seattle area, it's Jim Valley. And we head across the Pacific Rim, the Pacific Ocean, to Tokyo, Japan. And Japan's leading author, historian, and journalist, Fumi Saito. Fumi, how are you? Hello from Tokyo. So we are, as we record this, just mm-hmm. days away from the final match of Keiji Muto. Keiji Muto, yes. It's Glorious gonna, career. It's going to be... He is the biggest star of our generation. I would think so. I yeah. would think so. Um, we'll get into that in a second. I do want to touch mm-hmm. on... So it's going to be in Tokyo Dome. Do you think it sells mm-hmm. out? Yeah, pretty close. I'm pretty sure that it's going to look good. I Wait. can't say so completely sold out like, you know, 90s, you know, Antonio Inoki show or anything like that. I don't know, you know, but uh, they had more advertising, you know, and uh, the buzz is out. And, uh, oh, you, you know, I sent you the photos of the train stations and subway stations. Yeah. And big ads and all these. Yeah. It's pretty and impressive. You don't see that, that, that much. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, that's very impressive. Um, what do you think? Just if you were to guess, I'm not holding you to anything. Who will sell more tickets? The Muda final match or this past Wrestle Kingdom that we just had? Whoa. That's a real interesting one. Um, let's put it this way that the Casey Muto's retirement, retirement match will sell more tickets to the the, the the generation of fans that hasn't been to the card. Kind you of know. that lapsed fan. Wrestle King, yeah, Wrestle Kingdom is for today's audience, right? Right. Yeah, the wrestling fans in 20s and 30s, but the, for Keiji Muto's retirement card, that, the, all right, let's go, go to Tokyo Dome. I haven't been to wrestling in years, kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying that we're old or Keiji Muto is old, but... Uh, Garner and generates more like why like more like a wider generations of audience is what I'm talking about. Right. Um. So let's. Uh... Also, it became more like an all-star card now that uh, Keiji Muto against Tetsuya Naito, of course, is the main event. But now you have. Kazuchika Okada against Kiyomiya, that's the top New Japan star against today's top pro wrestling North star. And uh, top to bottom, it's like a pro wrestling, that the pro wrestling North and New Japan and even uh, one a card from all Japan wrestlers. And it, it, it's looking like a Japanese all-star card. Oh, it is. I mean, really, all of the Muda cards have been all-star cards. Yeah. That- so yeah, he is now under contract that he is a pro wrestling no wrestler. But when you hear Keiji Muto, is basically New Japan superstar, and he had his ten-year run as All Japan Keiji Muto era of All Japan, and he had Wrestle One, and he he's a different office, you know, different companies, and 
and very much individually, Keiji Muto is like a soul star. You know, it's fascinating. I just, just for the show today, just to remind myself of everything, I brought up Wikipedia. I had forgotten yeah, okay. that he was NWA champion. I was like, because it was such a nothing happening time as far as the NWA belt and... Well, yeah. it was around. You know, it was a time when WCW had a two sets world heavyweight title. Right. That, uh, to be precise, that the summer of '92, WCW made WC. Yeah. I mean, WCW world heavyweight champion was Lex Luger was with manager Harley Race. Right. In the same summer, the second annual G1 Climax of New Japan, there, there was a NWA World uh, Championship tournament. The tournament final was. Masachono against Ravishing Recruit, the crown, that version of NWA heavyweight title, so uh, championship. So WCW had two sets of world title, and one NWA world title kind of stayed in Japan for a while. But it's the same gold belt that the Ric Flair design belt. Um, This is funny. You talk about how how, uh, Americanized Wikipedia is. Says he's yeah. best known for his work as the great Muda. No, really. It was his alter ego in Japan. I know. It's very funny, and though. Also, that's just. Yeah, to, to that's just. That, uh, after he came back from WCW Run uh, as great Muta, Keiji Muto personally did not want to be great Muta because that's what he did in America. And, uh, but the New Japan wanted to have, you know, Keiji Muto and Great Muta, and the one to rotate his alter ego thing. And reality is, though, Keiji Muto was a wrestler that, that did this, you know, created this Great Muta thing. But when you have to do the two different character, you have to wrestle like Great, you know, Great Muta one night, and you have to wrestle like like Keiji Muto, you know, another another night. And what was happening in the States was that the great Muta, see, Muto didn't exist in America. It was always great Muta. Right. right? right. And the rest, actual work in the ring in America, he wrestled like Keiji Muto while he was being great Muta. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, because when he had to do great Muta in Japan, he had to be extra heel. And more mysterious and more, almost stereotype kabuki character and had to be healed and put the foreign object on in, in your you know wrestling boots and, and do this gimmick knee drop and uh, lots of juice back then you know like bloody matches and the mist you know you know the poison mist and all these things that he had to make sure that keiji muto and great muto two different characters so just had to do complete separate work but what you saw in WCW, if you remember, 1989 Starcade, right? Costume, yeah. That the mini tournament they had, Ric Flair, Sting, and Lex Luger and Great Muta. The mini tournament for 1989 Starcade. Actual ring work, what Great Muta was doing. He works like Keiji Muto, you know, with Great Muta costume. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, you're right. You know, I haven't watched that yeah. show in 
a million years. Right, for, forever. But the, yeah, I should watch uh, that again. Keiji Muto without the paint and costume uh, didn't exist in America. So what he was doing, actual in-ring work, was exact Keiji Muto's wrestling with great Muto costume. But in Japan, he had to do, when he had to do this great Muto thing, he had to be really different. So it, he had his own little struggle with it to make sure that these are two different characters. Tonight is Keiji Muto, and tomorrow night is Great Muta. And, uh, but he succeeded, you know, that uh, uh, he was able to, you know, play two different characters. And also the reason New Japan wanted to have Great Muta was that they sold a lot of merchandise. Right. Yeah, you know, the Great Muta complete costume, like, you know, fans, kids, uh, Male fans were buying like they like to be great Muta on your Halloween or something. Of you know course, yeah, yeah. So, uh, a business standpoint, New Japan '90s New Japan really wanted to have two different characters in him. You know, tonight is Great Muta. Tonight is Keiji Muto. Keiji Muto is a straight wrestler that will probably win IWGP Championship and G1 tournament. But uh, for the big show situation, Sting coming from America. And you would be Great Muta and Sting would be working. Or Sting and Great Muta tag teaming and go against Rick Steiner and Scott Steiner or something like that. Right. Or the Great Muta against Hulk Hogan. And one night, the one year they did Keiji Muto against Hulk Hogan. And it was like, he, he, had to make, he had to make sure that the, this is two different characters. If you remember, Hulk Hogan, Great Muta against Hellraisers. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so they did a lot. And... Uh, I guess it just uh, uh, Keiji Muto was able to, you know, gain another dimension in him, yeah, by having separate character. All in all, it's just so it's funny that the, you know, uh, you open up this, you know, the, the Wikipedia to make sure that the dates and years are right, right? Yeah, just a <laughs> and uh, just for notes, just for notes. He had this glorious 38, 38 year career. Well, I mean, like you mentioned, you know, you think of the highlights. You think of yeah. the IWGP title. Think of the Triple Crown title. You think of the G1. You think of, you know, the tag titles and the tag team with Chono. You think, you know, the, we'll get into all of it. But it's just, I don't know, it's just fascinating how you, when yeah. you, yeah. Um, you know, there's just, there are things like the NWA title yeah. you forget about. Because there's so much. He has so many. And after that, he had like what the, the, the Wrestle One title. Right. And, uh, yeah. Well, and you know. And in 1990, they gave him um, greatest 18 club title too. You know, that's the thing. Is, I don't know, a guy like Muto. You figure he yeah. can be the serious wrestler. And then you can be Muto, but then you could also go to wrestle one and that's kind of its own animal that kind of i don't know yeah oh he, he even worked hustle too hustle and also yeah. i guess here's another note i forgot he was in uh, tna is he, is he there? oh of course yeah I, again who knew who knew yeah pretty much worked every single company you know company or, yeah. you know, that was there the but every every place but wwe yeah. Yeah, I was really kind of surprised he didn't do a 
Royal Rumble gimmick or something in his last tour. But yeah, it's always kind of political that, uh, that he always wondered what if you know, he worked WWE. He always wondered about it. And he really didn't hide up, you know, about the fact that he wondered what if he worked WWE. But he, you have to actually move to states and, you know, spend time there. Right. What he did with WCW, you know, like a, a two separate runs. But he was a young guy back then. That was his excursion. That's different. That too, but if you know the dying day of WCW, like in 1990 into 2000, he spent like eight, nine months with WCW in, of all things, uh, Vince Russo era. He was there. Was he there that much? Gosh, I don't remember. I remember a couple of yeah. appearances, but not like well, a lot. You're not supposed to remember dying day of Monday Night Raw. That's fair. <laughs> That's, I will say this. Yeah. He did yeah. do that appearance for the Ring of Honor New Japan Battle Royal in Madison Square Garden. He and Liger faced off, and the crowd went insane for that. That was incredible. Oh, the Madison Square Garden? Yeah. The year before COVID? Yeah, I mean, and that's pretty much, I mean, that's almost like working WWE. I mean, that's their home arena. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And really, that uh, well, it was kind of like a group of lawyers who opened, the, you know, like a really opened the door for that, you know, Madison Square Garden. That the one yeah. company should not have exclusive with certain building, right? Right. Right. And uh, yeah. Well, why don't we back up? Again, sure, sure. Why don't we back up to the beginning of the great Muda career? 1984. Yeah. Yeah. New Japan Dojo, class of 1984. It's been confused that uh, um, Liger and, you know, well, of course, because of Wrestling Observer a little bit, but uh, it's been confused that um, Keiji Muto and, and Liger, you know, Jushin Thunder Liger started the same year. They didn't. Liger was class of 1983 with Sano and Hirohata, you know, and, and Keiji Muto... Masahiro Chono, uh, Shinya Hashimoto, uh, Funaki, uh, Masakatsu Funaki, of course, and Nogami, uh, Akira Nogami, five of them. That was ni- class of 1984, New Japan Dojo. Right, and that's where you get the Three Musketeers from. But that's yeah, another story. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the Masakatsu Funaki, who created Pancras years later, is just as important. And yeah, Akira Nogami was in this final, you know, Great Muta card, you know, just couple, you know, a few weeks ago at the Yokohama Arena. He had reason to be in that card. Yeah, because Akira Nogami, his career has been so overlooked, but he had the same length of you know career as Three Musketeer and Masakatsu Funaki, and also Akira. Nogami was one of those guys who went into acting, you know? Yeah, and then they came back, kind of thing. But anyhow, that the Three Musketeers, Keiji Muto, Masachono, Shinya Hashimoto, very important, right? But there, that was class of 1984 New Japan Dojo. And it was a unique time that, uh, it was a time that, uh, you know, 
Akira Maeda, that Nobuhiko Takada, that Yoshiaki Fujiwara, the original UWF guys left, like 10 guys left New Japan, right? 1984. Then Riki Choshu, the Yatsu, the Killer Khan, the Kuniaki Kobayashi, the 15 guys, you know, Riki Choshu's guys, they all left. So it's like New Japan lost like 25 guys. And there was a rookie. Keiji Muto and it's like a, it was like a being baby, right, in at the dojo, and they came in the time that the New Japan all of a sudden got kind of, kind of got a scouting crew. All they got was like a Anthony Inoki, Seiji Sakaguchi, and Tatsumi Fujinami, and Kengo Kimura. That's about it. And Cobra. And by then, original Taiga Masato Sayama left wrestling too. So it was an interesting time that when they were rookie. And you would think, it's like you worried about it, it's like, is New Japan going to be okay, right? Because it's such a skeleton group. The original UWF guy, 10 guys left. Uh, Ricky Choshu's group just left for New J uh, Old Japan, 15 guys. But what Muto and Chono Hashimoto was ta talking at the dojo was that, this is great, it will be on TV next week. <laughs> Seriously. It's an opportunity. You got to take your opportunity when you get it. That's how wrestlers... Would, you know, wrestlers mind work, I think. Oh, they should. They have more chance now than, than the last year or forever. There's that, more uh, upward mobility. Right away. Right. Yeah. And they were golden rookie from day one because they're big rookies, tall, built, and uh, yeah, and all good athletes, right? What, uh, yeah. what made Muto want to be a wrestler? Do you know? He wanted to be a wrestler, but he, he he went to judo college, you know, three-year college, like a judo setai chiropractic college, and he graduated from college. That's why he was already 22 when he studied with New Japan. And not the national championship, but like a division two, third national, third place national judo champion. Did he like grow up watching Baba and Inoki or what? What made him want to do it, do you know? It was, yeah, but uh, he was in the New Japan Inoki fan. Gotcha. More so than Jan Baba's Old Japan. Yeah. Hashimoto was the same way. And also, Masachono didn't really watch wrestling until, like, high school. And the night he watched Fujinami against Riki Choshu in early, early 80s, Chono decided, that's what I want to do. So they all came in with their own, you know, reason and motivation but the muto wasn't the grew up watching new japan basically interesting so 84 yeah in october october 5th to be exact 1984 muto's debut match was against masachono another rookie's debut match isn't that interesting because they right. they made it all the way to the superstardom and they're still friends to this day yeah i mean their so, career is very much Intertwine. Parallels, yeah. 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 And uh, they had both rookie run, new, uh, that, the young lion run, and the baby face run, and he runs too. NWO runs. He became much bigger star with black costume, was like, you know, NWO Japan and the Team 2000 kind of thing. Right. And the Keiji Muto is more natural baby face. But for, for the, around the time, the late 90s into 2000, that Muto kind of basically turned like a subtle heel. 
then joined Chono's team. But it was, uh, we have to, you know, rewind a little bit again that the 1984 rookie year that he, they were all young lions. And, and Muto was handpicked by them, them Booker, Seiji Sakaguchi that will send this guy to America first and spend a year in America and come back as a main event group. That's when he went to NWA Florida, spent 85, yeah, the whole year. And because it's 1980s and it's yeah. wrestling. There was like a very, like a, like a last few years of what you today call it territorial era, right? Territorial right. days. But and he yeah, was uh, Florida, the NWA, Georgia, the Tennessee. Though even within the Florida, you had the Pensacola NWA area, and uh, yeah, just just uh, they sent Keiji Muto to NWA Florida because they were New Japan and NWA Florida was basically an, an affiliate. It's like the last you know, year of Hiro, Hiro, Hiro Matsuda and Duke Kiyomuka, and yes, and the last year of Eddie Graham's life. 1984. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, yes. 80 grams, right. And also, it was a good place to go. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, actually, then-rookie Keiji Muto met then-rookie Lex Luger in, in 1985 Florida, and they became friends. Then they, they all crossed paths again. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I guess, I, you know, I didn't even think about Luger was there at the same time, wasn't he? Yeah, because yeah. Luger also was yeah. Hiro Matsuda student. Right. Yeah, Hiro Matsuda only trained like tall, built, legitimate athletes like you know Paul Orndorff, the Ron Simmons, the Lex Luger, the you know the, quite a few. Oh, of course, Hulk Hogan. Right. And uh, yeah, uh, uh, Ray Hernandez, you know Hercules. Right. And, uh, yeah, quite a few big guys, and of course, Keiji Muto already was a wrestler and young lion had a one-year career, but he was retrained and repackaged, and basically lifted a lot of weight, you know, pump up and you know, like come back as heavyweight wrestler, and uh, yeah, that's how he was. And also, Kendo Narasaki was there to basically kind of almost babysit. You know, young Keiji Muto there. That's right, yeah, Kendo Nagasaki, because he, he would have been there feuding with, like, Billy Jack and things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. And look, even as a local talent, talent you had the like Barry, Barry Windham and his brother Kendall Windham. Kendall Windham, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, people like Wahoo McDaniels come in, and work main event in right. the Florida area. And once, twice a year, Ric Flair comes in and uh, young Keiji Muto witnessed this. Like, when Flair comes in, all the houses are like a big house, you know, pop. Therefore, your paycheck could be much bigger when he was in the week he was in. Like, that's what world heavyweight champions do. I mean, like a learning business, you know, right. from inside. Yeah. In-ring work is important, but how this territory and uh, house show work and uh, all these things, like how wrestling business is being run. Yeah, he, he really, 
studied the aspects of business while he was in Florida. And one year later, he was sent back to New Japan, and he was a space long, long wolf, if you remember, with blue long tights, you know, like a shiny blue costume. Right. But by the time he came back, Ricky Choshu's crew from, you know, Japan Pro Wrestling, you know, from all Japan, he moved, you know, migrated back to uh, New Japan, and Maeda, Fujiwara, and their UWF crew migrated back to New Japan. And I remember having like four different big dressing room in New Japan house. New Japan's, you know, like a Seiki-gun babyface group, like Inoki and his, Anthony Inoki's private dressing room. Then there was Ricky Choshu in, in his group, big dressing room, and UWF dressing room, and American dressing room, like a four big dressing room in the backstage. And they always had like a 50 guys working at night. So, it was good time for for Keiji Muto, but it was he was almost lost in shuffle, you know. And uh, upon his first, you know, first return from America, there was uh, Keiji Muto against Atsumi Fujinami single match, or things like uh, Inoki, Kevin Van, Eric tag team against Keiji Muto and Kengo Kimura, and uh, Keiji Muto's very first in-ring encounter with Antonio Inoki and, and Keiji Muto, big juice kind of thing on t TV match. And uh, it's been forgotten, but it was an important part of his career. Yeah. But it was like the time that the New Japan had such a big roster that uh, two years, couple years later, like in 87, uh, Sakaguchi decided to send Muto back to America again, the second, you know, like excursion. Are you following me? Yeah. Now, why did he do that? Um, well, because the Japanese roster was so huge that the Seiki-gun, Inoki, Fujinami, you know, group to Maeda Takada's UWF group to Riki Choshu, you know, Kuniaki Kobayashi, the young Hiroshi Hase, the, uh, an American crew. That was a huge roster. And they were, you know, promoting Big Van Vader at the time, right? So, and Bam Bam Bigelow, of course. So Muto would have been lost in shuffle. Then, oh, this is a great time, for, you know, opportunity for Keiji Muto to go back to America and, you know, just be hidden until his time would come. Yeah. Right. Save it. Don't lose on TV. Yeah, yeah, because if you remember that the now leader against new leader, right. the Inoki and old guys team against, you know, Fujinami Choshu and Maeda all, all of a sudden teaming up as a new leader to take over the older generation thing. But it was interesting that the Muto was put in the now leader cluster and doing jobs, you know? And then why would young Muto be in Inoki's team this time? People had to puzzle. But he, it was the right choice uh, right, right call for Sakaguchi, you know, Seiji Sakaguchi to send Keiji Muto back to America or wherever, you know, for a time being. He worked in Puerto Rico for eight, you know, seven, eight months, then went to work uh, world class Dallas as a super ninja. Then, uh, uh, to be exact, probably was like a Great American Bash of 88 or something that Great Muto debuted in, in NWA. 
Yeah, it was a transition between NWA Crockett into WCW. And uh, he had, I mean, just had so much more freedom, I think, to be what he want to be. Yeah. Because Japanese, you know, dressing hierarchy that uh, I don't think it was really good fit for Muto because he's so talented individual and he's so creative that uh, being in Japan that long that he really had to wait until his turn. Does that make sense? So what happened on this latest excursion? Well, he went to Puerto Rico and then worked uh, Puerto Rico with Kendo Narasaki and Mr. Pogo for eight, nine months. And it's a useless trivia. When Bruiser Brody thing happened, you know, the summer of eight, that, uh, 88, he was in that building too. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah. But it was in a Bayamon's, you know, baseball stadium right. and one, like a third base side and the first base side at the big baby face dressing room and big heel dressing room. And that when that happened, the Bruiser Brody was in the baby face dressing room and Keiji Muto as Ninja and Kendo Narasaki and Mr. Pogo, they were all in the heel side of, you know, the way in the other side of baseball stadium. Right. But, but they heard. Something happened, you know, the people got stabbed, you know, but the show started. The, but the, to make a long story short, that the Keiji Muto was in that building that night, too. But after that, you know, Brody thing happened that a lot of people, rather wrestle, you know, lots of wrestlers escaped from Puerto Rico, right? Right. I mean, basically, most American wrestlers left the territory. Yeah. But then Keiji Muto, too, went to. Dallas, Texas, you know, world class was still around. And also New Japan and Von Eric's world class was like a was like a business partner at the time. It was easy for him to move from Puerto Rico to Dallas. Then you have Super Ninja, you know, era that uh, if you watch or look for old footage of like a nineteen eighty eight summer footage um, from world class, Super Ninja's in there. Right. Keiji Muto, yeah, as a super ninja, and like an instant hit. You know, it was the places, he, he was the heel, but you can't help but like, you know, super ninja, because it's so flashy, and so, I mean, you move so fast, doing the perfect moonsault, and all these, who will be later known as Keiji Muto style, but he was like, he has so much freedom, and being super ninja was, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was a fun time for him. Yeah. So he spent some time uh, with World Class before he moved to NWA Crockett into WCW. So he really experienced territorial era in America. Yeah, I mean, it's too bad he couldn't really experience the heyday of Dallas just a few years and earlier. And he'll be staying years and years you know, from Florida to NWA Georgia to Tennessee to even probably the Sheik's Detroit or Dick the Bruiser's Indianapolis or even up to um, go all the way up to Minnesota for AWA or he, he can go to all kinds, all Portland or Mike LaBelle LA area. Some, I mean, he could go all kinds of different places. Right. Yeah. But he did work in NWA Florida. Uh, 
Carlos Colón's Puerto Rico and Van, Van Erich's World Class, then to NWA Crockett into, into WCW. Was it Gary Hart? Did Gary Hart get him into... Actually, Great Muta, he wasn't even Great Muta until he came to NWA Crockett WCW. It was Gary Hart's idea to be, you should be the son of Great Kabuki. All right, you know? Probably and... older fans from late 80s probably still, you know, believe in this, you know, storyline that, the, yes, Great Muta was son of Great Kabuki. Well, that's one thing we didn't mention on the Great Muta final bye-bye. Muta brought out Kabuki at his entrance. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. He was like a wrestling brother or the, the father's son. Yeah, you know? the birth of, of the gimmick. Of son, but uh, Keiji Muto respected that, that he clearly got the gimmick from him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The original great Kabuki came in and did his music and all the nunchucks and everything and the miss. Yeah. And great, uh, great Kabuki himself announced that the, it was the last time he would be in public eyes. Yeah. So he, yeah, he's retired, but the great Kabuki doesn't want to be in the spotlight anymore. You know, so it's like a, it was a great opportunity for great Kabuki himself that it's a final night for great Muta. He, you know, he was invited to the ring and do the whole entrance music and nunchucks and the red mist. Does yeah. he still have his restaurant? What's that? Yeah, he does. You should, we should go. Yeah, we, we should. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that he is always there. A lot like a lot like Killer Khan's place. That uh, every time you go there, he's actually right in front of you, cooking something for you. Yeah, let's do that. We'll do that when we go in next month. Yeah. Then he, he sells his T-shirt and in uh, you know photo, and if you buy his stuff, or sign autograph for you. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. We'll definitely do that. We'll do that. That'll be fun. Yeah, let's do that. Um, did Muta like, or I should say Muta like being Muta in WCW? Well, he didn't do Keiji Muto in WCW. I mean Muta. That's why I said Muta. Did he like this yeah, period? Always. I guess in America, that's what he wanted to do and what then that's exactly what the company wanted him to do. Yeah. Not generic Keiji Muto without the face paint or like short trunks with regular wrestling boots. At the time, they still had this stereotype for Japanese wrestler. You know, either you'd be throwing salt or the sneak attack or harbor attack or being healed with another heel manager, you know, doing the talk. It was an era. And, uh, you yeah. know, I but, would I would uh, say that he Muto didn't exist. What's that? I would say that he kind of broke some of the stereotypes because he was so he was so athletic. Um, yes. And everything. It's like I remember when he and Sting would feud over the world. Very complimented each other. They feuded over the world TV title. And I was watching and thinking these guys should be feuding over the world title. But or, or be tagged him someday. Yeah, or so I don't know. It just felt like I don't know. Just felt like the old guard was not getting out of the way. I don't know. 
That's just as a kid watching it, I just remember being frustrated. Dusty Rose era. I know, but I was just like, these guys should be the guys fighting over the world title, not the world TV title. But that's just kind of what they did. Probably had a. That was a time they really had that the young WCW had a chance to compete with WWF at the time. I think so. Producing something completely different on TV. I think so, but yeah. It was yeah. kind of chaotic behind also, the scenes. Um, oh, just last month, that uh, years and years later, that Sting acknowledged that that uh, this man made me better. You know, he felt that Sting at the time was also like a second, third year rookie. You know? Right. Yeah. Coming from Bill Watts' company, you know, Crockett bought Bill Watts' uh, Mid South UWF company and emerged. And Sting was in that, you know, Louisiana package. It's kind of, he can get lost, right? Right. And, uh, yeah. So when Gray Muta and Young Sting were programmed, you know, they worked probably like 30, 40, 50 matches against one another on, in the house shows. So they got better together. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah. And... I spoke with both person, you know, Great Muta and Sting, that they really respected each other. Yeah. They still do. Yeah, because after all these New Japan, the WCW, the even TNA era, that now it's 2023, that Sting is still working in the ring with AEW. But when Muta, Great Muta, Keiji Muta wanted to do a little last business, the Sting would fly over to Japan and do his last run with him. That's a really great thing about wrestling, is bring back all the memories for fans. Like, I've been watching these guys for 30 years, man, kind of thing. Right. It's a good feeling, isn't it? Uh, since we started talking, I turned on Starcade 89 on Peacock. And okay, okay. Oh, it's in there, huh? Yeah, yeah, of course it's in there. There really isn't a lot of uh, Muto or Muta. Really, it's just, I'm having trouble finding stuff on the network or on Peacock. But anyway, um, but before we move on to the real bulk of his career, you know, the rumor is, the legend is that Muta was so mad about being booked to lose every match on Starcade 89, that that's why he left. Do you know? That's not it. No? He didn't, he didn't really mind it, you know, because of course it's a mini tournament round robin with Flair, Sting, and Luger, and the fourth guy was Great Muta. He'll be losing all three matches, yes. And he shouldn't have problem. He didn't have problem with that. It is so American. Was, was it in Wikipedia? I don't know where it, it's always been a, an urban legend. And maybe Gary Hart said it, somebody like that. It's something like, but okay, there's always right. the story that I don't think he was mad for losing all the matches at Starcade and that, uh, that, uh, precipitated his exit from WCW. I kind of don't think it was true at all because New Japan had planned for him starting in 1990. That's what I was felt too. Yeah, yeah. And also, yeah, if it was an important single match in Japan, 
that the wrestlers, you know, including Keiji Muto, would be a little bit more careful. But it was a time that he was in America and gaining experience. And of all places, you know, WCW, the Major League of Professional Wrestling, that he was in the top cluster. You know, he probably, Keiji Muto himself wasn't expecting it either at the time. Right. He's not the homegrown guy. And he's literally, like you said, there just to get experience. It's not, nothing really matters. At the time, yeah. yeah. 1989, Muto was still, what, 27 years old. Yeah. Yeah, five years in, in business. Yeah. So it wasn't like, you know, he was so bitter about losing all three t- tournament matches on the Starcade. I think it was a story that was made afterward. Now, you were in the U.S. around the same time as Muto, weren't you? Um, I already finished college and came back to States. I mean, came back to Japan, but I, like 85, 86, 87, 88, I went back and forth, back and forth, like three or four times a year just to do the wrestling magazine work for like two weeks there, one month there, three weeks there, one week there, one month there. And I, I was going, doing back and forth. So I did visit Teiji Muto in Florida. I did uh, visit Teiji Muto in, in NWA, Crockett into WCW, yes. When did you first meet him? Um, young Lion. Young, well, young that Lion early. In Japan. That early, wow. 85, yes. Because when you see the first match, black black trunks and black tights, I mean, black wrestling shoes being Young Lion, you cannot help but think this guy is very, very special. Right from the get-go. Right. Yeah. Well, let's go back yeah, to do Japan in uh, 1990. It was the time Anthony Noki already became politician and left the territory, basically left the company. Well, not retired. You know, Inoki would occasionally come back and have a match or two a year. And it's a special thing at the Tokyo Dome or something. But it was at the Riki Choshu Booker era. You know, when Inoki left the company, he gave this booking position to Ricky Choshu, and Ricky Choshu became the bo- you know, dressing room boss. And he didn't really put himself over. See, Ricky Choshu and Tatsumi Fujinami still not retired, but the main event position would be that the company would be having these, you know, big shows and all these. This time it was Muto, Chono, Hashimoto, and Kensuke Sasaki and Hiroshi Hase, five stars era, that uh, Ricky Choshu designed that. and. Uh, he stepped down a little bit. And then G1 Climax era begins. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. And all new American stars like Big Van Vader, Bam Bam Bigelow, Scott Norton. And it's all brand new sets of main event guys. Yeah. So it was, that's when uh, Keiji Muto had this he rotated, but the red trunks or shiny orange trunks with white wrestling boots, that era. And Hashimoto came back from Canada with his karate, you know, martial arts costume. And Masa Chono had this white knee tights, like, you know, like Masa, Masa Saito tights, but white in right. Japan. Yeah, yeah. And a brand new three superstars who were born. Yeah. 
Yeah, Three Musketeers was, era was very interesting because Inoki was old enough to, you know, not to be in the main event. He didn't lose single matches. But he, he, he put Ricky Joshi over clean a couple of times before he left. But uh, people in 1990s wanted to have this new, the whole new set of superstars. By then, Maeda, Takada, Fujiwara, the, the UWF guys left again and formed this second version of UWF, that uh, shoot wrestling kind of thing. And uh, New Japan was traditional professional wrestling with stars and uh, big heavyweight Americans and the big production and the TV Asahi, you know, this you know, major league wrestling kind of thing. And on the other side, like, it's like Major League Baseball, National League, and American League, right? But in 1990s, yes, all Japan, Jan Baba's All Japan Pro Wrestling was like, they started having this Misawa era, you know? So it was like exciting time in, you know, early 90s, brand new main event superstars. One side, Three Musketeer, one side, Misawa and his guys. Jumbo was retiring too, you know? And Tenru left. Uh, to have SW, in short-lived SWS, but that's another story for another day. Yeah. Yes. So that was New Japan's new era kind of thing. Now, and when it was good that, yeah. And, and talking about that, you know, is when yeah. Muta came out to be when Muto came out to be the great Muta for like the Starcade in Tokyo and. How do you explain that to the fans? Well, I guess it was like alter ego thing, you know, um, kind of like a mask guy, you know, like you know, everybody knows who Jushin Liger is, or the back to like the original Tiger Mask, you know, everybody basically knew he was Satoru Sayama, but the people, fans even pretended that no, we don't know who he is, hmm. <laughs> you know. So sure. it was okay to have great, you know, Keiji Muta being great Muta one night and back to Keiji Muta you know, another night. And it was kind of like a Clark Kent, you know, or Spider-Man kind of thing. You know, yeah, I guess. Superhero uh, thing in Japan. Yeah, I guess I don't. I just, it occurred to me. I don't know how he was introduced to fans in Japan as, as yeah, the great Muta. Muta because, oh, not much explanation. It's just... Uh, Great Muta will come down to earth kind of thing from his mysterious land of, you know, whatnot. Yeah. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah, two different characters. Well, people accepted it. 90s, you know. Yeah. Didn't really need that big of an explanation, you know. Yeah. What about Muta's first world title? First, I, I, guys, like I'm not very good at this, you know, like a, title, you know, switch kind of thing that uh, I can remember things from the 80s and 90s, but the was, oh, it's what, uh, in what month and from who? He, uh, he, uh, August 18th, August 16th. Did IWGP title before Keiji Muto was IWGP champion? August 16th, he donned his great Muto persona to be Choshu to win the greatest 18th oh, club okay, championship okay. and the you know IW. What? I think they used it pretty well because at the time, that the, without pain in the gimmick, that the plain old Keiji Muto wouldn't have beaten Ricky Cho, 1991 Ricky Choshu yet. Gotcha. Yeah, because 
the, the finish was gimmicked, meaning that the, he won the title with Green Mist or something, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was like a little bit on the, you know, excuse on Ricky Choshi's side, I guess, on part, I guess. Yeah. So he became IWGP champion as Great Muta before Keiji Muto was IWGP champion. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because when Hulk Hogan made a few, you know, a few trips between WWF and WCW, he came back to New Japan for a few shows. That uh, one night he had a single match against Keiji Muto. The, you know, another night he had a single match against, Kei, you know, Great Muta. So it's uh, two different contents of the match. Yeah. Yeah, there's that very famous clothesline ring. Yeah. Also, being a ring, being a ring with Hulk Hogan in single match situation in 1992, the company handpicked Keiji Muto to be that person. I mean, who who would want to have single match? Oh, everybody wants to, but the the perfect person because that would this person would be elevated that the, this guy had single match against Hulk Hogan in Japan in a big show, the Yokohama Arena or Tokyo Dome kind of situation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was Keiji Muto that had to be that person. You don't have to win. You don't have to beat Hulk Hogan, but uh, it was not Riki Choshu. It was not Tatsumi Fujinami, but it was Keiji Muto to be in that place at the time. Yeah. Like above everybody else almost. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So you won the I There was a greatest 18 club, 1992. 1990, probably the greatest 18 club, meaning that the greatest 18 wrestlers, you know, Inoki faced in his time, you know, like you know, Andre the Giant, the Taiga Jitsin, the uh, Stan Hansen, the Ruthless, the Nick Parkwinkle, the uh, Hiro Matsuda. This is the greatest 18 club championship belt was made, and in, in he got the, the, the Ricky Choshu first had it, but uh, he also great Muta was also greatest 18 club champion too but that championship belt was quickly forgotten too yeah another title yeah that he won basically keiji muto was grand slam right yeah iwgp title that uh, with all japan he had a triple crown title with pro wrestling no he had a ghc title and we you and i talk about nwa that the which version but the 1992 1993 version of nwa world heavyweight title he had that too in florida he had nwa florida title in puerto rico they had the world wrestling council tag team title <laughs> all those things yeah yeah and florida heavyweight title too yeah nwa tv title wow there's so many you know it's funny you mentioned I've got a, uh, a video game for the Nintendo 64. It's a ja it's okay. uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling 2, basically. Anyway, okay. in the game... What you, format? Uh, N Nintendo 64. Yeah? And, uh, kind of flat? No, it's great. I love it. It's my favorite game. Um, okay. You can be both uh, Muto and Muta... And I think you can be uh, also NWO Muto. Muto. Oh, okay. Interesting. interesting. Yeah, it's very funny. I just remember that. They're all slightly different. Cause right. NW, NWO Muta is the only one who has Shining Wizard. 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. And Keiji Muto will have moonsault. Yeah. And yeah. I think something in between, you need to have, you know, leg sweep, dragon screw into figure four leg lock. That era was long. Yeah. When you think of Muta, yeah. oh, what, what do you think of? Is, it, it, is there an era? What do you think his best era is? Well, he did it for so long that uh, basically last 30 years he did both. I mean, starting from like 91-ish into now, that he he has been doing both Keiji Muto and Great Muta. So it, it's not just a certain period of time. Well, no, but let me add, what I'm saying is, for you, yeah. like someone might say, my favorite time for Hulk Hogan was the first three WrestleManias. Or my favorite mm, time mm. for Hulk Hogan was the NWO. Or, right, or right. was whatever time it was. It's like a um, great Muta character itself has even evolved, you know, from early 90s, great Muta was, you know, paint and the hood, right? Right. But the old Japan is like 2002 into 2010. That great Muta had a different, like a, like a, your, you know, sci-fi helmet, like, you know, <laughs> and uh, different painting. And uh, yeah, it's a great Muta character even evolved over time. Yeah. Different costume. Yeah. And different finish. And also, it's not our urban, urban legend, but the, his knee, you see, Keiji Muto always had bad knees from like late 80s, and he always worked around it. And uh, people ask me which match had, I mean, like this fatal, you know, injury, you know, for this, his need to be so bad. You right. Know? Yeah, that's yeah. someone wants to know on Twitter. Yeah, he, yeah well, today's Keiji Muto, yes, he has artificial uh, knee and artificial tail, that, that the crutch bone or whatever that, that he has, yeah, plates in few places in his body, but uh, he can still work. You know, like work, like he worked, he learned to, he had learned to work around it, you know, around his injury. You know, he, he worked so smart, right? Right. And, uh, yeah. He, he kept, yeah, kept reinventing himself, I guess. Well, even his great, even his Muto, he, you know, mm -hmm. that character, he changed as well. I mean, yeah, you know. Space long off to orange. The short trunks Muto to a black, you know, that the painted uh, long costume or long hair Muto to bald headed with, you know, this goatee Muto, you know. Yeah, yeah, he really kept reinventing himself, I think. Somebody asks, uh, he always stayed relevant, right? What do you consider his most memorable matches and his biggest oh, contribution wow. so to wrestling? Well, what is historically important was Tokyo 1995 Tokyo Dome, New Japan against UWF International. You call UWFI in America, right? That's right. only in English-speaking English world. Right. In Japan, it's never been UWFI. Right. It's always UWF International. Anyhow, that the Tokyo Dome card, the, the New Japan against UWF International, Keiji Muto against Nobuhiko Takara on top, it's so hard to predict the outcome, right? 
because UWF and Takada had this reputation of being a bunch of tough guys, and UWF was going to make wrestling a legitimate sport, and a lot of people almost religiously believed in UWF, right? This group of UWF wrestlers will make wrestling into legitimate contests, all right, right? So it was professional wrestling, you know, boundary, of course, but uh, Keiji Muto against Nobuhiko Takada, and most people thought Takada would be Keiji Muto that night, right? right? Going in. But it was a night that the Keiji Muto elevated himself and also revived existing dragon screw leg sweep, which was Katsumi Fujinami's 70s move, and also figure four leg lock, as old as what? The body Rogers, the, the, the <laughs> Dick Bayer destroyer that all kinds of wrestlers used as finish figure for leg lock. But all through 80s into 90s, a lot of people were using figure for leg lock as like a rest hold, you know what I'm saying? It will never be finished, you know what I'm saying? Right. You still saw figure for leg lock during the match, but will never be finished. But the, the, the match was booked so smart, I think, that the people had no idea that this figure four leg lock and Takada, I mean, tough guy, you know, Nobuhiko Takada tapping out. It's like, oh, wow. You know, and then the night after this happened, Dragon Screw into figure four leg lock became the greatest finish of wrestling once again. That's interesting, you know, because Muto himself really revived the figure four leg lock and had people believe when figure four leg lock comes, that would be the end of the night. Does that make sense? Yeah. And also, altogether, Keiji Muto and the producer, Booker, Ricky Choshu, killed UWF best that night. Yeah. What's interesting is, though, that October, November, November look, look, read your Wikipedia, that the Tokyo Dome match, <clears throat> Keiji Muto against Nobuhiko Takada, first encounter, Muto beat uh, Nobuhiko Takada in the clean, in the middle of the ring, figure four leg lock, tap, tap, tap out, right? What's interesting is, though, four months, three months later, uh, following January 4th Tokyo Dome ca card, Keiji Muto and Nobuhiko Takada met again, second match, and that time, Takada beat Keiji Muto to win the IWGP title, but people don't remember the second match. Isn't that interesting? Nobody ever remembers the second match. Yeah. So there were two sets of, yeah, two single matches between Keiji Muto and Nobuhiko Takada, but you have to win the first one. That's the one people will remember forever. Exactly. Just like the same, yeah, like 1990s, uh, Misawa, you know, Mitsuharu Misawa against Jumbo Tsurura, that the Misawa beat Jumbo Tsurura for the first time and pinned him one, two, three in the middle of the ring and became all Japan's number one guy that night. Actually, just one month later, the very following tour, Jumbo and Misawa met again at the same Nippon Budokan and Jumbo beat Misawa, you know, in the second match. But people don't seem to remember that one. Yeah, so I learned some. We really learned in something that when you have this important single match, maybe in wrestling booking 101, they do it twice and they share one win and one lose, right? But you have to win the first one, and that's the one people will remember forever. And 
people don't remember the second matchup between Takada and Muto. That's very interesting. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, you don't remember that, do you? No, I'm, I, now I do know you mention it. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't Keiji Muto to get the IWGP belt back from Takada. It was Shinya Hashimoto's turn another three months later. That's right. That Hashimoto beat Takada to get the IWGP belt back to New Japan. But uh, the match is already done. So Keiji Muto and Nobuhiko Takada you know, didn't meet again in single match situation. That's very interesting because now that uh, this, you know, how to run a wrestling business and the winning and losing and producing and booking all these things, uh, more so after this, the whole internet era that people think, a lot of people think is you're so smart about business, right? They all, you know, wrestling is work and it's booked and that they make, you know, winners and losers. So winning and losing don't matter. It does matter actually that uh, people do remember winners. I mean, it's just like the people don't talk about that about movie, you know, because outcome in the, in the, at the end of the movie, it's important. Wrestling, in, even in wrestling, winning and losing means something that people forget about that now. Does that make sense? Oh, no, it makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, because now that a lot of people think, you know, on the internet era that the people think it's, they were, you know, like they're all so smart about wrestling. You know, oh, who's going to win? They're going to win. Who's so-and-so is going to win? Okada's going to win. You know, Will Ospreay, the Kenny Omega, all these things. But they think it's smart. But outcome still is very important. Yeah. yeah. You know, as we're talking about all this, keep my memory, talking about evolving uh, with Muta. Yeah. You know, he stopped doing the moonsault and he made the shining wizard. The shining wizard yeah. was like yeah. the move for a while in wrestling. Everybody mimicked it. Everybody yeah, copied. It became trend. It's like, yeah. that, uh, that's also another internet thing that uh, you have streaming or YouTube or you hear about it right away and then uh, you know, people start trying that move right away, you know? I forgot, and yeah, he's like. Best move ever, running knee. Yeah. And also another move that Keiji Muto created was like a, that the basement drop kick, like a short drop kick to the to your knee. Right. Yeah, because drop kick used to be something. Standing drop kick, you you know jump so high and kick the guy drop kick so high, right? But the, actually, Muto couldn't jump anymore that high, you know. So he created the short drop kick into guys' knees. Then work, you know start working on people's leg into your figure for leg lock. So smart. He worked so smart. The actual reason was that the, I couldn't jump anymore. That, you know, I couldn't jump that high anymore. But he created the short drop kick. And that became trend too. Everybody drop kicked people's knee now. That was also Keiji Muto who created it. Yeah. He did a lot of things, small little things like that though. Yeah. All through his career. Yeah. Yeah, it's just. I mean, the I don't, just all the stuff that he's done is it's pretty remarkable. I mean, yeah. To and I mean, you figure he was brave enough to leave New Japan and actually sign with Old Japan. Um, okay, after WCW is like a, like a very dying days of WCW, 
he was there and almost witnessed the like a WCW dying, right? Right. That's when he came back with shaved head. Oh, you know, Stone Cold era. You right. know, he was gonna. He was basically losing hair too. You know, on top of his head. Oh and my God. He had long hair, but kind of losing on top, right? And that was he had a perfect timing that the December of you know 1999 uh, into 2000 he came back with shaved head and like Stone Cold Steve Austin the cart angle that the other people that the people start shaving head right and it looked really cool that around that time and you need goatee yeah so I'm watching uh, Starcade '89 right it's uh yeah it's Muda and Flair in the ring pink pink cut pink trunks flare right and muta yeah. is already in the ring they give flair his entrance and then who do they go to who's outside the ring mike shaw norman the lunatic dressed up as santa okay. claus ah <laughs> uh, uh. that that encapsulates perfectly WCW in 1989. <laughs> they have this match. They go to Norman the Lunatic, dressed yeah. as Santa Claus. American pro wrestling, everybody. Time, yeah. WCW major league of wrestling, but it was so southern based, right? Very southern, very stupid sometimes. Very stupid. Yeah, I thought so. Anyway, sorry about that sidetrack. I just, I couldn't let that go unacknowledged because. Oh, that's wow. fine. But also. If you think about it, you know, the Starcade mini tournament, all four top guys of WCW, Ric Flair, Sting, Lex Luger, it could have been people like Barry Windham or somebody, right? No, it's, yeah, no, we're cool. It's all good. Yeah, so, but they wanted to put Keiji Muto, Great Muta in there. So he was clearly, you know, it, it was like a producer's or a dressing room backstage choice. This guy is so talented. What did he think? Okay, I just, something just jumped in my head. I'm spending too much time on this, but what yeah. did he think of that electrified cage match, that Halloween Havoc match that he had? Do you know? Did you ever ask him? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah butcher, you know, being electrified, excluded or something. Yeah, remember, it, uh, Part of the set caught on fire, and he blew out the fire with his mist. He was like a human fire extinguisher. Uh, I mean, that really escaped from, yeah, I did the VHS video in Japan. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I produced this, you know, and then actually had Muto come into studio with us and did the voice over on that, you know, great Muto in America video. Oh, yeah. wow. Mm-hmm. I'll show you when you can come over. Yeah, I'll have to that. see that. that. Anyway, it's such a ridiculous concept for a match. Wow, Ric Flair just beat Mood in like a minute. But anyway. Yeah. Um, anyway. Um, let's get back to her. We were NWO in Japan, right? You know, WCW. You know, New Japan had plans for three Musketeer and Cage. No, no, we don't need to spend any more time on that. It's not a big deal. I just was getting a little sidetracked. Um, all Japan, here's what I wanted to say. Mudo in All Japan is so impressive because he'd been wrestling for like 15 years at a very high level. Um, mm -hmm. What is he, in his 40s now? 
1990, like 38, 39, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he could do that, go to all Japan. 2002, he's 40 years old then. Yeah, 2002, he, he was born 1962. So, yeah. Year 2002, he turns 40. That's yeah. impressive. That's very impressive. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And also, it was the era that uh, New Japan was in, in such a mess. You know, right. and it was the beginning of the dark age of wrestling, the K1, the pride, the, the you know, Japanese MMA peeking out. That the, the era of Bob Sapp. Like, yeah. 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 Oh, epitome of the you know, dark age. Yeah. And New Japan and Anthony Inoki sending people like legitimate wrestlers like, like Ken, you know, Kendo Kashin or, or Yuji Nagata. And they, they do the... MMA against people like Federer, Emilienko, or Milko Krakow with two-day training. Of course you get killed, right? Right. But really damaged wrestling business at the time. Yeah. Antonio Inoki at the time sided with MMA people, sort of. Yeah. And also Keiji Muto witnessed dying days of WCW. He felt that he had to do something. He worked the entire year of 2000 um, with Old Japan, still under contract with uh, New Japan, though, but he mainly worked the year 2001 with, uh, with Old Japan. Then a lot of dream card came to, like Toshiaki Kawada against Keiji Muto, Toshi, uh, Tenru against Keiji Muto, and uh, whatnot. And uh, it was right after Misawa and his guys left and formed Pro Wrestling Noir. You know, all Japan also was a skeleton. And Keiji Muto came in and saved the company. You know, and, uh, the opportunity was there. And uh, yeah, it was, what was interesting was that, you know, there was a plan that the New Japan, uh, after Misawa and his guys left Old Japan and Channel 4 Nippon TV went with Misawa's people and started airing Pro Wrestling Noah's show. And, Old Japan skeleton crew without television and New Japan secretly wanted to buy Old Japan Pro Wrestling during year 2001, you know, buying Old Japan from Mrs. Baba, Motoko Baba. And Muto was basically sent over there to, you know, to revive the territory, basically. And after you revive the territory, New Japan was going to buy it. But instead, Keiji Muto himself signed with Old Japan instead. That was an interesting time. Yeah. And New Japan ended up not buying all Japan. Now it's all forgotten. Yeah. But this Muto era of all Japan lasted uh, 2002 to 2010, probably. Yeah. So he had 10 year run with all Japan. Very interesting era. You know, around the same time, Hashimoto left New Japan to form Zero One. Yeah. And, and there was a short-lived uh, uh, World, World, World Japan, Double J. Riki Choshu left Old Japan and, and formed a new company called Double J, World Japan Pro Wrestling. So there was like New Japan and Muto's version of Old Japan and Hashimoto's Zero One and Riki Choshu's Double J. It looked like a four sets of New Japan wrestling in there because content looked like New Japan. Dark Age. Wasn't it? You know, it's, you think about, I mean, it seems like a, when you look back then, you're like, God, how could, 
how could wrestling get out of it? And we'll we'll have to do a show on that. Um, one of these days. Professional wrestling. Well, just in in uh, coming out of it. And then the people had to wait until you know people like Hiroshi Tanahashi and Shinsuke Nakamura and Katsuyori Shibata all come up as a new star. Yeah. Yeah. You always have to anyway. wait for a new star to be born. It's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. But Keiji Muto remained in his position, so he was committed, you know, to all, this version of Muto version of all Japan pro wrestling. You know, he grew up with New Japan, so he, you know, he really struggled, you know, because New Japan had their loyal fan base, so did All Japan, you know, and All Japan fans welcomed Keiji Muto, but he welcomed, you know, like a All Japan loyal fan base welcomed Keiji Muto as an outsider, sort of, you know, to save the company. But uh, Keiji Muto, you know, had his his wrestling was so new Japanish that uh, he brought in his friends, you know, like, you know, Sato, you know Satoshi Kojima, the Kendo Kashin, the, he brought in people like Dan Fry, the, you know, it, it looks like another set of New Japan, right? And so all Japan fan kind of puzzled with it. Then pretty soon Tenru left again, Kawada left again, and it's all of a sudden, Muto's version of all Japan looks like it's just a Muto show, you know? It's like, look like another new japan <laughs> like a new japan split into like four ways at the time yeah really struggled huh but at the same time they kept all japan's crown jewel like triple crown or spring tournament champion carnival or the tag team tournament in december or the international and pwf tag team title as a world tag team title or all those all japan's Crown Jewel was there, and Muto, Keiji Muto really took care of that, yeah. Yeah, you're talking about the Dark Ages. I forgot, again, he held both IWGP and the uh, Triple Crown at the same time. Yeah, yeah, so New Japan is the number one title, and All Japan's number one title. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah! Like, young young, young Hiroshi Tanahashi. There's so much to remember. Yeah, yeah. And also, and like, there's... Like, uh, amazing. It was, like, almost 20 years ago now. Well, and oh also, wrestling is so... Uh, if things made more sense, and they were more linear, and their ups and downs, I mean, obviously, if both companies were really strong at this time, something like this wouldn't right. have happened. Um, right, right. And pro wrestling, you know, was on their own. At, uh, yeah. You know, they were really all Japan at this point. and Kobashi, yeah. they were at his peak era, they run, they they were running their own Tokyo Dome card. You know? Right, they were basically all Japan at this point. Yeah, basically all Japan. Just name was Pro Wrestling Noor, that the Noor's Ark. Yeah, you know that they left, you know, home, yeah. uh, that they left Mrs. Baba, and they got on the Misawa's boat. We have show. We have we have a show about that. I know in the archive somewhere. So look that up. Yeah. Or maybe in the, before we got on the Observer, you can find it. I know yeah. that. Oh. Right, yeah, oh. we did that. And <laughs> also what was interesting is that the Misa, both Keiji Muto and Misaru Misawa were both born in 1962, same age. And the dream match, single match, Muto and Misawa, much like Baba against Inoki, that never took place, you know? 
Yeah. They did have tag, tag team match at the Tokyo Dome once, though, like 2006. Right. But Misawa against Muto single match never happened. Right. And that never will now. We talked about that. That's kind of what he wanted for his last last match. Um, very quickly, I don't think I told you this. Uh, speaking of, you know, we did this podcast before we were on The Observer. So you can find free episodes if you haven't heard those. A lot of them cover history. Oh, the but Spotify? No, yeah. no, no, the Podbean. Podbean. Anyway, um, very, so my father-in-law um, yeah? is having cornea issues. So he's having oh. issues with his sight right now. So he's using Alexa, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, the audio commands. And he, uh, he goes, Alexa, play Jim Valley. And Alexa started playing the Pacific Rim. It's very funny. <laughs> really? Yeah. That happened last week. Wow. It was very cute. So. Wow. Yeah. The register, register, and the, 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 the I'm, bring you right to Pacific yeah. Rim, huh? I'm positive that my father-in-law understands yeah. none of what we're saying. He's a, <laughs> but he does, he's a well, he's a he's a former history teacher. He does like history, but anyway, okay. uh, get, let's get back on topic. I've I just thought that was kind of a funny story. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing that he did such great work, really, in his forties and his fifties, and he's still a draw. I mean, yeah. he was he was the champion, you know, the GHC champion. Not that long ago. And always many events. Yeah. Yeah. And kept reinventing himself, introducing new finishes. Yeah. From moonsault to figure four leg locks to shining wizard to, yeah, yeah. Just kept reinventing himself. Yeah. Well, and you, you look at always it. Always in many events. You know, when I was thinking yeah, about it. Wrestle uh, that the... Uh, Old Japan era, there was a Wrestle One era, right. W1. Then a little bit of freelancing for a year or two. Then finally, Maru Fuji talked him into, you know, signing full time with Pro Wrestling Noir for the very end of his career, 2021. And last two years, he decided to, you know, to be with Pro Wrestling Noir of all places, you know. So he he worked New Japan, Old Japan, in Pro Wrestling Noir. Yeah. It's very impressive. All the singles title too. It's very, and I think very impressive. it's been, I, except, uh, 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 exception of Anthony Noki, that Keiji Muto had this greatest retirement tour, you know, since last, what, last fall? Yeah. Budokan show, the Ariake Arena show, the New Japan's historical, that the crossover, you know, uh, New Japan and Stardom show. But, Keiji Muto was actually in that in that card too. Then in the new January first, Shinsuke Nakamura Budokan show. Then Yokohama Arena. Then finished with Tokyo Dome. It's all huge shows. Yeah, great retirement tour. Like yeah. I told you, you better make him pay when you guys go out. He's got the money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, he's always been highest paid wrestler in Japan since nineties. Well, he definitely has to pay now. Just kidding. Anyway, I'm just joking. Um, oh, was, there's a photo that uh, he and I did the wine party in in, in Tokyo. Right, yeah. right. That was a couple of years ago, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I was going to say, you know, it's kind of interesting 
kind of his start sort of was the the new versus now. And really, that's kind of been the theme to his career. Always new, reinventing himself. Always new. I don't know. To me, that just kind of seems, as I thought about Mudo's career the past couple of days, I kept coming back to new and now. And he always knows when to leave the company, always knows when to change his look or to incorporate a new move. You know, he's always, he's always one step ahead. It's, it's pretty smart. Oh, everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And his ambition and his big heart, I think it was built and developed when he was a little kid. His hometown of, you know, that uh, uh, Fujiyoshi, uh, Fujiyoshida, that uh, his living room, you know, living room window, he opens the living room window in his home, big Mount Fuji he grew up looking at. Yeah. Here's a couple of questions before we wrap up. From Mount Fuji from Tokyo, the little little shape of Mount Fuji from Tokyo, but where he grew up, that the Fuji Yoshida, uh, you open the living room window, it is a big, huge Mount Fuji standing right in front of you every day. That's what he wanted to become, I think. You know how, I mean, how Japanese people look at Mount Fuji. It's not cliche that we all love the shape of. Mount Fuji, you know, it's the greatest mountain ever. Probably, you know, you grew up in the West Coast, you look at Mount Helena, you know, or something. Mount St. Helens, yeah. Yeah, St. Helens, yeah. Well, it's, it's because of volcano, it changed the form, but the Mount Fuji is, I mean, it's, I don't want to sound cliche, but for Japanese people, that shape of Fuji is really magical. He grew up, you know, looking at the mountain every day as a kid. Yeah. Then he became Mount Fuji of wrestling. Kind of cliche, huh? But uh, I believe that. That's an interesting analogy. Hey, uh, one thing we haven't touched on, uh, someone brought up in their questions. We probably should. How much of the Vader G1 match did they... Plan ahead. plan ahead and did they expect that insane reaction this is wrestling yeah this is wrestling so the the booking decision was made but you cannot predict the reaction of crowd how's that yeah that's the true invader monster american that nobody can beat they created new monster in big van vader and uh, it was a g1 climax time that uh, you know, the Muto and Three Musketeers becoming a new star, early 90s. And of course, the booking decision was made, but you cannot predict the, you know, the even bigger reaction by the audience. Yeah, so I cannot say, you know, how much was planned ahead, you know, that you cannot plan people's reaction ahead of time. Yeah, that crowd was white hot. Yeah, yeah. And then also start recognizing this is Muto's era. Were you there for that? It's Sumo Hall? Yeah, of course. All three days, you know, they're going to... G1 Climax wasn't one month thing before. It was like in the early 90s. It was like three days or five days consecutive dates at the Sumo Palace. You go there every day, every night. You know, like, yeah, I made a habit of it. And also, I attended a lot more shows then. Yeah. Now I'm lazy. Older. 
Sorry about that. You're just older, that's all. I'm going stardom show at Korakuen tonight. Oh, yeah? And Sunday morning, Sunday morning, I'm going to All Japan show at the Korakuen because Yuji Nagata's challenging Triple Crown for the last time, I think, and I'm hoping he's going to win. Yeah. Korakuen is a great place to watch wrestling. Yeah. Then next Tuesday, like four days from now, Tokyo Dome. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll still attend a lot of shows. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And then I'm going to see you in like a month. But you know, how, how much was a plan ahead of time? Of course, the booking decision was made that the Muto going over on the Big Van Vader, but uh, you cannot predict or design how people will react. Yeah, know? that crowd was hot. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was anticipation and the people were you know, ready to have new star. Inoki left and uh, not quite Ricky Choshu and Fujinami. The, the senior wrestlers, of course, they're star, still stars at the time. But the people wanted to see new star being born. Yeah. It took Monster Big Van Vader to, you know, to do the honor, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes it, uh, it makes perfect sense. Um, it's, what do you think? When you think of uh, Great Muto, when you think of KJ Muto? Uh, to me, Great Muto is just the part of KJ Muto, of big picture KJ Muto, yeah. What do you think of, uh, when you think of KJ Muto, what do you think of when you think of Muto? Or well, the biggest star of our time, yeah. And also, we need to go into a Tetsuya Naito match before we wrap up because he is, the, the Keiji Muto is leaving wrestling with very relevant figure that, oh, this is his retirement match, but I think this, this time, you know, he's putting it's a night to over clean. You know what I'm saying? Keiji Muto, I don't think he's planning to win this match as his retirement match. He is going to be very creative to put Tetsuya Naito over, and this year, 2023, will be Tetsuya Naito's year. Like, beat Muto at the Tokyo Dome, he'll probably win the IWGP World Heavyweight title this year. He, you know, Naito's going to probably win a, a G1 Climax this year, and this year is going to be like a really special year for Naito. And that's how Keiji Muto wants to leave the wrestling. How does that? So you think the fact that he's going out with Naito means big things for Naito? And yeah, and that was the night that uh, just overnight Naito will become the guy, become the man by beating Keiji Muto. Yeah, in very creative manner. And some people even believe that the Keiji Naito, you know, that Tetsuya uh, Naito will come in or shave his head with goatee and he's, uh, look just like Muto. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but this is going to be a very special night for Naito. Of course, it's a special night for everybody. And also, this is a retirement match for Keiji Muto. It's a very special match. But it, at the end of the night, we witnessed that that Naito 
is the guy. I mean, kind of abstract, but uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it will be a very creative, very special match. Yeah, to me. Yeah, I mean, for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, not just happy retirement match, you know, with flowers and stuff like that. It's like, wow, this was a new beginning of like a, it looks like the you know like a finale final night of the season so and so, but it was actually the beginning of new season, new era, and episode one will start. Yeah. What about uh, the future of Noah without without Muto? Oh, but this is just, the structure is all different. That it's not like house show business with you know the tours but now it's um what's progressing noise ahead of everybody right now is this streaming service the abema tv that the cyber fight and cyber agent wrestle universe that the, that the, in, in a way progressing noise ahead of new japan in that uh, aspect of business you know streaming and and the i pay for view and uh, they're charging people like fifty dollars per show just by what you know, watching this live, you know, streaming pay per view through Abema TV or something, and if hundred thousand people subscribe, that you have like stadium card, you know, like a revenue would be different. And Casey Muto clearly mentioned that when I leave wrestling, that the you know wrestler will have one more zero in their earnings. I mean, like if you are making hundred thousand, maybe wrestler should be making a million now that kind of thing that the when he leaves he wanted to build a structure where that the i this you know streaming internet streaming pay-per-view would be the thing and it'll change the dynamic and the whole economy of professional wrestling from this point on forward does that make sense yeah it makes sense yeah the muto is looking at that way too you know that the, he wants to leave and the structure wrestling economy and change the landscape and go with technology because he's experienced territory era he's the experienced the vhs tape era he's experienced the internet streaming now that is like this is the thing that the people pay i pay streaming pay-per-view per show and that's like subscribers all over the world now you know live and someday we'll probably experience the kg muto yeah, pretty soon Every major wrestling company like New Japan, Old Japan, Pro Wrestling Noah, and Stardom, they will always have English commentary and English play-by-play live. How's that? Oh, I'm sure so they the will. It is worldwide. And someday we'll have the KG Muto probably like a, uh, a hologram. <laughs> or AI Muto. They're an AI Muto, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, something like that, yeah. yeah. So uh, he's sensing this new era, not just the wrestling product or the content of the match, but the overall production and overall economy of wrestling business is changing. It's he changed the landscape, there's no question. He's, he is an all-time great, there's no question about that. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, probably, you know, even after retiring, Keiji Muto will come in to, like, as a guest commentator or something, He's bigger stud than, uh, you know, that, uh, like active wrestlers or something. Yeah. All right.
right, Fumi. Well, look, let's uh, see if we can get touch base after the show on the 21st. Let's do a show after Tokyo Dome. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do that. Yeah. I'll yeah. make that happen. Okay. How can uh, people... Have, have Dave, Dave come over too, maybe? Let me see what I can do. I'll see what I can, yeah. if I can work my magic. Sometimes he responds, sometimes he doesn't, which is, which is very yeah, Dave. Busy guy, busy guy. He's yeah. a busy but guy. We're closer to do this with technology that uh, we used to do the radio show and uh, I came in as a guest and it was like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, but now we can do this with podcast live, you know? And uh, yeah, we have to yeah, go with time and technology too. <laughs> yeah, very good. Anyway, all right, how can people get in touch with you on social? Um, on Twitter, at Fumihiko Dayo, F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O, Fumihiko Dayo on Twitter, or Fumisaito on Facebook. Please message me first, offendee. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Jim Valley. Until next time. So long from Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs>